So, we will continue with the similes for the Buddha nature. But first, we'll do our chanting and meditation and cultivate our motivation. So today, when Geshe-lo was talking about generating our motivation, he was saying it's important not only to have a human body and human mind, but also to live in conducive circumstances so that we can practice. So that made me think of people both in Gaza and in Israel people who have human bodies and human minds. But just because of where they were born, yeah, just because of where they were born, then they're exposed to certain viewpoints about life, about their own community, about who they are and how they're supposed to act uh, for their community. And so when you're young, and even when you're old, you keep hearing this kind of talk around you. And everybody seems to think this way. And so you easily go along with that way of thinking. Because it can be... Uh, very shaky to allow yourself to think differently than a group thinks. And yet by not challenging the group think and going along with it, we can uh, have all sorts of horrible views that act as the basis for incredible negative karma. And that's just by the quote-quote accident of where you're born. So it's important for us to always think about what we hear from our culture and our family and our country. 
and to learn to apply our ethical standards to it, to take the time to think about what our ethical standards are, and then apply them to what we're being told. And then in that way, we have some choice about our actions and thoughts and emotions. So it's quite important to do this. Yeah. Going with the flow in some situations is going off the waterfall, falling down, down, down. So while we have this opportunity to really think about ethical conduct and decide for ourselves what our standards are, and while we have this time to think about karma and its effects, then it really behooves us to pay attention and to think about these things. Because not only will it affect our awakening, but also our rebirth, and also just even this lifetime. And so, of course, the best ethical standard is one that is supported by compassion, not revenge. Compassion, wishing others well, subduing our self-centered thought, and our self-grasping ignorance, and really thinking about how to enact the most beneficial uh, behavior and circumstances for all living beings. In other words, how to generate bodhicitta ourselves and then how to act with the mind of bodhicitta. So it's with that kind of intention that we're going to listen to the teachings this evening. So we often contemplate the kindness of other sentient beings and our dependence on them. Uh, we contemplate their good qualities. 
But it's also important to know that we live in samsara and that those kind sentient beings uh, don't necessarily know how to think correctly or have the correct values and standards. And in times like this, when you read what's happening in Gaza and in Israel and the absurd statements both made by both sides, you sometimes feel like you're living in an insane asylum. You know, it's like, what is going on? People are thinking like that, doing that, and they think that's going to bring happiness. They think that's okay. And whole groups of our kind mothers and human beings, you know, are acting in an ins- a totally insane way. And here we are trying to practice living in the middle of that, where that viewpoint and that behavior is seen as heroic, as esteemed, as the right way to work for the benefit of your group. And people really believe that. But when you think about it, and compare it to what the Buddha said, it's crazy. Totally crazy. So it's a thing of how do you maintain your spiritual and ethical sanity in an environment that's crazy. So this is our challenge. As the uh, sutra that Geshe was teaching said, uh, in this degenerate times, when you are trying to uh, practice, you create so much merit that's greater than what they created at the time of the Buddha, simply because we live in an environment where it is that much more difficult to actually try and stay sane and have a kind heart. Okay, so uh, just be aware that's the that's our situation. But how fortunate we are that we have the ability. Uh, you know, that we've met the Buddha's teachings and that we have the ability to discern yeah, what are the causes of happiness, what are the causes of suffering. And it takes great, uh, great fortitude to actually uh, act according to what we know and what we believe. It's so much easier to go with the crowd. Okay.
So, we're talking about Buddha nature, that all these kind mother sentient beings who are also completely crazy, and us who are borderline crazy, but have some little glimmer, you know, of something else, uh, you know, that we have this Buddha nature. And when it talks about how it is covered by, you know, the, the dead, dying, ugly lotus, or by the bees that are around honey, you know, uh, we can really see how true that is. I, I, everybody will probably have their favorite simile of these nine. I really like the one of the bees around the honey. Yeah, that one just, it's so clear and so obvious, you know, this delicious honey just sitting there. And nobody can eat it. Nobody can even see it. Nobody even knows it's there because all the hornets and wasps and bees and so on are all zooming around it, buzzing around it, and there's no chance to see what is underneath, what is there. And if you try to push the wasps and hornets away so you can see the Buddha nature, you get stung. Yeah. The hornets just don't go, oh, thank you very much. Yes, you're right. I'll move over there. Yeah. They sting you. So, you know, in the same way, our our afflictions, yeah, when we're working at trying to subdue them, they're not going to just go out easily. They're going to be like the hornets and put up a big fuss. Yeah. So we have to we have to be attentive and be aware to be able to understand when that is happening in us that it's not because we're hopeless. It's not because the path doesn't work. Yeah. But this is sometimes what you have to go through in the process of subduing the afflictions. Yeah. Okay. So I think we did the first four similes. So we're on number five. Okay. The goal buried in filth. That's a good one too, isn't it? You know, you take, especially if you've lived in India and the cows just go kerplunk with their poo right in the middle of the road. Yeah. So it could be like right on the top of a bunch of gold. Yeah, and you're trying to avoid the poo, but, you know, you don't even have time to look for the gold. Okay. So the Buddha essence is like 
a treasure under the earth. Like a magnificent treasure buried under the earth in a poor person's yard. Okay, so maybe in a Gazan uh, refugee camp, you know, where people are packed in like sardines, and uh, now when they don't have food or water or fuel, and everything get, is getting filthier, and the hospitals can't even function to care for all the injured people coming in. Okay, like a magnificent treasure buried under the earth in a poor person's house, you know, in a war zone. Yeah, or you could think, you know, in Israel too, same thing going on. You're trying to live your life, and then sirens go out, and you have to run for uh, to get into a bomb shelter. Okay, so like a magnificent treasure buried under the earth in a poor person's yard, the Buddha essence is obscured by the latencies of the afflictions. So remember, we have two sets of afflictions, the afflictive, uh, not two sets of obscurations, the afflictive obscurations that prevent liberation and the cognitive obscurations that prevent full awakening. So the latencies of the afflictions are the cognitive obscurations. This obscuration pertains especially to Shravaka and solitary realizer Arhats, who have eliminated the coarse manifest afflictions and their seeds, but whose minds are still obscured by the latencies of afflictions, especially the latency of ignorance, that prevents them from becoming fully awakened Buddhas. Okay, so those following the uh, Shravaka and solitary realizer path who have uh, uh, attained the culmination of that path, Arhatship, yeah, their afflictive obscurations and the, the seeds of the afflictions have all been, you know, eliminated from the mind but the latencies of those afflictions still there, and they still obscure the Buddha nature, okay, and prevent them from becoming Buddhas. While these arhats have realized emptiness and overcome afflictions, so these are not dum-dums, you know, they're way more advanced than we are. We should always respect them. So while these arhats have realized emptiness and overcome afflictions, the ground of the latencies of afflictions are the condition through which arhats obtain a mental body and abide in the pacification of samsara that is an arhat's nirvana. Okay, so lots of different words here. So they've realized emptiness and overcome afflictions. Now it says the ground of the latencies of afflictions. I've tried to figure out why it says the ground of the latencies of afflictions because it actually refers to the latencies of afflictions. Unless maybe it means that you have the, you know, uh, the arhats have in their mind stream the basis for the latencies of afflictions. 
So they have those obscurations in their mind stream. Okay, but it's referring to the latencies of the afflictions. Okay, now arhats are not Buddhas, so they don't have the enjoyment body and the emanation bodies or the the dharma the two dharmakaya bodies but they can generate a mental body now i've been trying to get more information about a mental body and i haven't been so successful i know that it depends on having the ground of the latencies of afflictions okay and it's some kind of body that arhats have. It's not the same as the Buddha's kayas, okay? But it enables the arhats to abide in the pacification of samsara that is an arhats nirvana, okay? So remember when we talked about different kinds of nirvana, Nirvana with remainder and without remainder and non-abiding nirvana, natural nirvana, and so on. So on. Okay. So these arhats um, stay in their nirvana, meditating uh, on the nature of reality. Yeah. And so that's extremely peaceful. That's the pacification of samsara, because. Uh, there's no afflictions. Yeah. All the afflictions have been eliminated. So they have that kind of body that enables them to stay. I'm not sure exactly where they stay. Some, and there may be a variety. Um, some may stay, for example, in the form of formless realms. But I also know that some arhats um, go to um, Amitabha's pure land, Sukhavati, which is surprising because Amitabha's a Buddha and he wants everybody to become a Buddha, you know, and everybody to practice bodhicitta. But when you read the Amitabha Sutra, they talk about the arhats. Yeah, and when you're born in Amitabha's pure land, apparently there's nine levels of lotuses, and you are born inside of a lotus, okay? If you are an arhat, it takes a really long time for your lotus to bloom so that you can come out and hear the teachings in Sukhavati. For people who have bodhicitta, their lotus blooms more quickly and they can come out and hear the teachings and practice. Okay. So those arhats in their, um, you know, slow, slowly blooming, uh, lotus. Yeah. So they have a mental body. That's the kind of body that is inside that lotus. Okay. What does it look like? When you get one, please tell me. I have no idea. Okay. Do you? Have you read anything? When you're... Everybody in the right? <laughs> Amitabha's red.
Okay. So while these are, okay, I read that sentence. Uh, yeah, they attain a mental body and abide in the pacification of samsara that is an arhat's nirvana. After these arhats generate bodhicitta, they follow the bodhisattva paths and grounds. In doing so, when the ground of these latencies is removed, they will attain the ultimate true cessation, non-abiding nirvana. And that is Buddhahood. Okay, so attain, to attain Buddhahood, you have to remove all these latencies. Yeah. A treasure buried under the house of a poor family can free them from poverty, but they do not know it is there, even though it is right under them. The treasure does not say, I'm here, come and get me. So our naturally abiding Buddha essence, okay, the emptiness of the mind, is like a treasure that has existed in our minds or with our minds, beginninglessly. This emptiness of the mind does not decrease or increase. It does not call out to us saying, I'm here. But when the Buddha tells us about it, we learn how to uncover it freeing it from even the ground of the latencies of ignorance that prevent full awakening. Okay, so emphasizing, you know, the importance of hearing teachings. Okay, because that Buddha nature doesn't call out to us. And nobody else, you know, kind of, the kid walking down the street doesn't say, oh, there's a treasure under your feet. Okay, so we have to have teachings. The Buddha tells us about it. Then we go looking for it. Then we start uh, hearing, thinking, and meditating on emptiness and trying to understand it. Okay, and through that, then we will attain full awakening. Okay, so that's number five. Number six... Yeah, the Buddha essence resembles a tiny sprout hidden within the peel of a fruit. Okay, have you ever peeled a fruit and something it's already inside has started to sprout? Or, or maybe think, remember when you were a kid and you soaked lima beans and then put your lima beans in a glass jar filled with um, paper towels, and then your your lima beans would sprout, yeah, and break through the the shell around them, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, how many of you did that? Yeah, we all thought. Oh, some of you were deprived, huh? You did mung beans, okay? That's okay. Yeah. So, okay, so beans have tiny sprouts inside, but we cannot see them until the fruit and its peel have been shed. Okay, so that's what happens after they sprout. Then you, you know, the peel has been cracked. You can begin to see them. 
Similarly, for the path of seeing to be actualized, the objects of abandonment by the path of seeing must be destroyed. What are the objects of abandonment for the path of seeing? Yeah, the acquired afflictions. Okay, so those must be destroyed, yeah, for you to actually have attained the the, the uh, path of seeing. This simile applies particularly to ordinary beings on the paths of learning, as well as fundamental vehicle aryas who are not yet arhats. So the paths of learning... Sometimes they refer specifically to the path of accumulation and path of preparation. Sometimes they refer also to whatever you're practicing before you enter path of accumulation. Because they're the paths where you have to learn. Okay. And sometimes paths of learning refer to, you know, the first four paths, accumulation, preparation, seeing, and meditation, because you have to learn on all of those and abandon various objects to be abandoned. Okay, so this simile applies to ordinary beings on the path of learning. So ordinary beings, uh, specifically those who haven't realized emptiness, Okay. as well as fundamental vehicle aryas who are not yet arhats. So they may have realized um, the, the path of seeing and path of meditation on, in the shravaka vehicle or the solitary realizer vehicle. Until they uh, attain the path of seeing, the acquired afflictions, which are the objects to be abandoned by that path, Obscure their Buddha essence. Wow. You know, that, that, that's a big obscuration, but imagine that that's where you're at. And that's the big thing for you to, to eliminate. You know, you've already been on the path. You can discern virtue and non-virtue, so on, you know. You could have generated bodhicitta or maybe not. So while on the path of seeing, these learners have overcome the acquired afflictions, but still have the innate afflictions and their seeds. Those are abandoned on the path of meditation. The transforming Buddha essence is like a sprout that has the potential to grow into a huge tree that will offer shade for many people on a hot day. Just as the sprout needs good conditions to grow, we rely on the conditions of the collections of merit and wisdom to nourish the transforming Buddha essence. Transforming Buddha essence, is it permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Okay. So great compassion, wisdom, Reverence for the Mahayana teachings and their goal, a great collection of merit and samadhi are nourishing conditions that assist the transforming Buddha essence to become the wisdom dharmakaya. Okay, so the transforming Buddha essence 
as anything in ordinary sentient beings' minds, the continuum of which can go on to full awakening. Yeah, there's some mental states that uh, their continuum cannot go on, like anger, resentment, arrogance. Yeah, so those are eliminated. Their continuum cannot become the uh, the Dharmakaya of the of a Buddha. Okay, and so specifically indicating the wisdom dharmakaya, which means the omniscient mind of a Buddha. Is the omniscient mind of the Buddha permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Why isn't it permanent? Buddhas don't lose their omniscience. Yeah, their mind still changes moment by moment. It's a new moment of mind that arises. Okay. Okay, so that's number six. Number seven, the Buddha essence is like a Buddha statue covered by a tattered rag. Gee, feels like I've seen some of these. You know, people are cleaning and you start to clean the statue and then you get thirsty, so you just put the rag on top of it. The tattered rag, and then you go, oops, what did I just do? <laughs> so the innate afflictions and their seeds, the objects to be abandoned on the path of meditation, resemble a Buddha image wrapped in a tattered rag. This dismantling of the afflictions began on the path of seeing, and now, on the path of meditation, they are in tatters and ready to be discarded completely. Similarly, ordinary beings and aryas on the learning paths, so aryas who are not yet arhats, are still obscured by the innate afflictions and their seeds, but they are weak and will soon be overcome. Okay, so I think to be at that level, you're probably on the bodhisattva path of meditation. Yeah. Nevertheless, while present, they obscure the Buddha essence. Yeah, so when they talk about like the, the ten grounds and the bodhisattvas who go up then, and the different um, kinds of realizations they have and different knowledge that they gain, it's really quite amazing, you know, and how that also can manifest in their physical capabilities to, you know, having, you know, with their minds knowing the karma of different beings and then being able to create different manifestations who who go out and look like ordinary beings and actually help, uh, you know, the sentient beings. Okay, so they're, uh, they still have the innate afflictions and the seeds, but they're weak. And as you go through the eighth, ninth, and tenth bumi, you are cutting off layers of them. A deva, okay, so a celestial being, sees a Buddha statue under a dirty cloth 
and explains to a person who wants to have a Buddha statue that it is there and she should retrieve it. In the same way, the Buddha sees that the ultimate nature of his own mind, the emptiness of inherent existence, is the same as the emptiness of the minds of all sentient beings, even animals, hungry ghosts, and hell beings. That's really something to think about, you know, especially when, like I was saying at the beginning, if you're around people who are having a lot of judgment, and these beings are terrorists, they should be killed. These beings are liars, they should be shot. You know, you're around this kind of talk, uh, th- then, you know, the more you hear it, you don't even think of these people having Buddha nature. Yeah, because everybody's talking about them as if they were innately evil and horrible. Yeah, that was one of the questions recently in one of the talks I gave, wasn't it? Somebody asked, is there uh, inherent evil? Yeah. So lots of people in society think that way. Yeah, and if you think that way, how are you ever going to see the Buddha nature? Yeah, you can't even see people's ordinary mundane kindness. Yeah, let alone their incredible potential. So this beautiful Buddha nature is covered by the remnants of the 48. 84,000 afflictions. To free uh, it from these, the Buddha teaches the Dharma. should be to free them from these. No, to free it, it is referring to the beautiful nature. Just as the whole statue comes out at once when the rag is removed, the nature dharmakaya, so this the emptiness, and true cessation of a Buddha's mind, the nature dharmakaya appears in its entirety when the mind is freed from all defilements. So that's the difference between the last moment of a sentient being on the tenth bhumi and the very next moment when they are a fully awakened Buddha. Yeah, when that has been eliminated and the nature body appears in its full. Okay, then the eighth one. The Buddha essence remembers a baby, uh, I'm sorry, resembles a baby <laughs> who will become a great leader in the womb of a poor, miserable, forlorn woman. Okay, so there's a poor miserable, forlorn woman, yeah, who's pregnant. Uh, her, her baby has the potential to become a great leader and actually will become a great leader who will then be able to protect her and make sure that she's safe. But right at that moment, you know, it's still a baby And she doesn't know what that baby will become. Yeah. So she's really 
as they say, down in the dumps. Yeah, and the Republicans also took away the, uh, you know, they want to cut the money for food and nutrition for poor mothers and their kids. Yeah, We have to balance the budget. Yeah, like you said the other day, a country can't live with that much debt. So how do we lower the debt? You cut all of the uh, programs to benefit the people in the citizen, uh, you know, in the citizenry, because you can't cut the military. That's more most important. Yeah, so you cut all the programs that benefit people, education, yeah, Medicare, Medicaid, yeah, food for impoverished mothers, all these kinds of programs. Okay. So it's a good example, you know. If you think of a poor, impoverished woman who's pregnant, who has, you know, her baby has the potential to become a great, kind leader, but she doesn't know that. Yeah, and she's going from one homeless shelter to the next one, to the next one. Not knowing that her child will one day be able to protect her, she knows only her present suffering. Similarly, Arya Bodhisattvas on the impure grounds, in other words, uh, grounds one through seven, yeah, they're called impure because those bodhisattvas still have um, some afflictions and the seeds of the afflictions. Okay, so similarly, Arya Bodhisattvas on the impure grounds, grounds, grounds through seven, have amazing potential that they are as yet unaware of owing to the womb-like confines of the afflictive obscurations. When they emerge from these on the eighth ground, their pristine wisdom becomes even more powerful, like the baby who has grown into a great leader. Okay. So as you go up the bodhisattva stages, it's not that you have a deeper realization of emptiness. You still have the same realization, direct perception of emptiness. What has changed is, as you go up the, the different uh, grounds, is the strength of the mind to eliminate the afflictions. So because of the um, realization of emptiness, the, uh, that you know, continues to be fortified because these bodhisattvas continually meditate on emptiness, then their ability, the ability of the mind, becomes uh, sharper in, in terms or, or more stronger, stronger is a better word, more forceful in terms of eliminating the obscurations. Mm. Okay, so cyclic existence is like the homeless shelter in which this poor, miserable woman lives. 
There she is reviled by others and sinks into despair because she has no refuge or protector. Her child, as a great ruler, will soon be able to care for her, but she does not know this. Similarly, we do not realize that our ultimate protector is inside of us. But when the emptiness of our minds is revealed and becomes the nature dharmakaya, our problems are forever pacified. When we later actualize the enjoyment body, we will be like a wealthy monarch who can protect all beings in the land. That's a nice simile, isn't it? Okay, then the ninth one. This is the last one. So the Buddha essence is like a golden Buddha statue covered by a fine layer of dust. Golden Buddha statue with a fine layer of dust. The Buddha essence of the pure ground bodhisattvas, so these are grounds 8 through 10, So these bodhisattvas have eliminated the afflictive obscurations and they are in the process of eliminating the cognitive obscurations. Okay, And so they're they're called the pure grounds because they've eliminated the afflictions and their seeds. Okay, so that Buddha, their Buddha nature is still covered by a thin layer of cognitive obscurations that impedes their full awakening. So the latencies of the defilements that bring about the appearance of inherent existence and prevent directly seeing the two truths simultaneously. So this is what the latencies of ignorance do. Okay, They make it so that uh, it brings about the appearance of inherent existence. This word appearance, it's nangwa in Tibetan. Sometimes it's translated as appearance. Sometimes it can be translated as perception. Which And those two have very different meanings because if we say something appears inherently existent, that gives you the feeling like it's from the side of the object that the the fault is the object because it's appearing inherent existence. If we say perceive inherent existence, it gives the feeling that our mind is actually cognizing the inherent existence. Okay, so it's it's um, what what it means for the pure ground bodhisattvas is. There's the appearance of an inherent existence because the mind is polluted. So it's not the problem with the object. The mind has that dust on it. And so when it sees things, it sees them in that distorted way. Yeah. Yeah. The word nangwa is used, it's like nampa. You know, there's certain words in Tibetan that you just use when you don't know what else other word to put. Yeah? And then you try and figure out what it means.
Nampa is harder to figure out than than uh, Nangwa. Okay. So these latencies of uh, the defilements, yeah, can bring about the appearance perception of inherent existence, and they prevent directly seeing the two truths simultaneously. So only the Buddha can see the two truths simultaneously. The lower, uh, the pure level bodhisattvas can see the two truths directly, but not at the same time. They have to go back and forth. Like a magnificent golden Buddha statue that was cast in a mold and is now covered by only a layer of fine clay dust remaining from the mold. Their Buddha essence will soon be fully revealed when the Vajra-like concentration at the end of the continuum of a sentient being removes the last remaining obscurations from their mind stream, allowing the Buddha essence to be fully revealed. Okay, so... Yeah, the Buddha essence is there, but there's still that obscuration. And what eliminates it is the Vajra-like concentration that is the last moment of the Bodhisattva path of uh, meditation. Okay, because that, that Vajra-like concentration is the one that eliminates uh, any lasting remain, uh, any lasting remnant of the cognitive obscurations. An expert statue maker recognizes the preciousness of the gold statue covered by clay dust and cleanses it to reveal its pure booty, beauty for everyone to enjoy. Similarly, the Buddha sees our Buddha essence and guides us Oops. guides us on the path to reveal it so that we will be able to manifest emanation bodies. These emanation bodies will appear in various forms according to the karma of the sentient beings who can benefit from them. By these means, the Buddha will become, the Buddha we will become, will compassionately instruct and guide sentient beings according to their dispositions, just as the Buddhas that already exist guide us in that same way. Okay. If you go back to the previous page, uh, 308 and 309, yeah, the chart there is goes across both pages. Okay. So it, it, um, it, this chart is very useful if you, you know, when you want to meditate on these nine, because it gives you very clearly, you know, what's the simile f- for the obscuring factor? What in the world is the obscuring factor that particular simile is pointing out? What is the simile for the obscured? Okay. So what is it that's being obscured? And, uh, you know, and then, uh, so that's the, in the simile, and then what is the actual obscured phenomena? And then also the person sp- who is specifically obscured by this obscuring factor. Okay. In other words, who this particular, 
uh, simile is directed at. Okay, so that uh, those that chart gives you a very quick rundown of it. And so, if you've read the section, you know, on on that uh, on the simile, uh, then, and then you meditate, you can have. A, you know, this is very very good for having all the information quickly. Okay, then the reflection. So contemplate each simile one by one, and then consider how it applies to you, how it applies to the people you know, how it applies to all beings around you. Okay, so how it uh, applies to Netanyahu, to the leaders of Hamas, to uh, dear Jimmy Jordan. Yeah. Uh, who just got nominated. Uh, not, he hasn't been voted in, but he is now the nominee for the Speaker of the House. What did they say? God save America? Yeah. You remember Jimmy Jordan? In the, in the, in the uh, first Trump impeach, impeachment, he was the one who made this huge billboard you know, and brought it into uh, into the House of Representatives where they're having this. And he starts accusing the, the people who are testifying, you know, and saying what Trump had done and so on, of lying. And the billboard, he said, was from something he learned in grammar school. Yeah, he said, you people are just like this. Fire, no, liar, liar, pants on fire. Yes, those were his words of wisdom in the House of Representatives. Yeah. Liar, liar, pants on fire. So he, and he's the one who, he lives up to that. You know, uh, he, I think his pants are on fire a lot. You know, when you hear what he says in Congress, uh, what he accuses people of. So, uh, you know, so just whoever you think of, you know, you think of him. And I mean, my goodness, if he becomes Speaker of the House. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but he has the Buddha nature. Yeah, and he's a kind sentient being, and he means well, dear. Okay, so the third point in the reflection, seeing that each sentient being is impeded by obscurations that limit uh, their happiness and cause misery, let compassion arise for each and every sentient being. Yeah, so that's my latest slogan. You just got to love them. Okay? They means well, dear. You just got to love them. You know, because they're, you know, it's they're ignorant just as we are ignorant. Just as, you know, sometimes, I mean, we act abominably 
And we have to look at ourselves and say, you know, it's hard with ourselves, isn't it, to say, oh, I just got to love myself. After I acted that way, well, you know, be tolerant, do some purification. <laughs> okay, and then the fourth point in the reflection, with strong compassion, cultivate bodhicitta and determine to become a Buddha in order to lead all sentient beings to actualize their Buddha essence. That's a good thing to do, huh? Yeah. And they say that Shakyamuni Buddha, I forget how the story actually is. You know, somehow, uh, you know, the Buddhas were all hanging out and talking. And, uh, and one Buddha said, uh, who's going to go to uh, the Saha world, you know, the world of misery and suffering? And uh, all the Buddhas except one kept quiet because they thought the Saha world, our world, is like, it's too much, you know, can't handle these, these sentient beings. But Shakyamuni Buddha said, I'll go. Yeah. So we got lucky. I wonder if he regretted it. <laughs> no, Buddhists don't have regret. <laughs> they don't have regret. But you think of how strong a Buddha's mind has to be that here they are all the time trying to benefit sentient beings, trying to put a little bit of a positive thought, a little bit of something virtuous into somebody's mind for a split second. And the sentient beings are totally resistant. Like, you know, I'm watching my cartoons. Don't disturb me. Huh? It's, it's like that. Yeah. And uh, fortunate for us, the Buddhas just don't go, well, yeah, okay, if you feel like that, go ahead, watch your cartoons. Ciao, bye-bye, I'm fed up with you guys. Yeah, we get fed up with people over the tiniest, smallest little thing, don't we? Yeah, tiny things. Somebody's five minutes late, somebody didn't, clean something the way we want it cleaned. Somebody, you know, they burnt the tofu again. Yeah. They put lemon and orange on top of... <laughs> yeah. You know, together with vinegar on top of pound cake. <laughs> you know? And the Buddhists just say, you just gotta love them. <laughs> and here, you eat the dessert. <laughs> okay. Yes question about the very end of number eight. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if I'm... When it says, uh, 
when the emptiness of our minds is revealed and becomes the nature dharmakaya. Isn't the nature dharmakaya the Buddha? The nature dharmakaya has two aspects. It's the emptiness of a Buddha's mind, and it's the true cessations of a Buddha's mind. Right, so it refers to a Buddha. It refers to a Buddha. Then why in the next sentence would it say, when we later actualize the enjoyment body? Because wouldn't that happen simultaneously? Where is that? It's the next sentence. Where? On which? On uh, the, end of, it's at the bottom of 307 and the top of 308. Oh, okay. That's so that. Let me see. I thought those things were. The child, the great. Revealed and becomes the nature, truth, Dharmakaya. Our problems are forever pacified. Yeah. You've, uh, you've eliminated all obscurations from the mind. So all your problems that arise from negative karma are pacified. But wouldn't you at that same moment have an enjoyment body? Because it says when we later actualize. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. You would at that moment have, have an enjoyment body. But it's interesting. Sometimes, uh, like when you're doing tantric meditation very often, like in Yamantaka, you, uh, you attain the Dharmakaya first in your meditation before the enjoyment body, before the emanation body. That's just the way it is in, in that. Uh, laid out in the meditation. In fact, you perceive all the Buddha's bodies simultaneously, or you actualize all the Buddha's bodies simultaneously. Yeah, maybe that should be... Yeah, you can take the word later out if you want to there. Venerable, mm-hmm. maybe you've said all you want to say about um, the ground of the latencies of afflictions. But I'm curious, and I'll bet you asked this question, how's that different from the grounds of the imprints of ignorance of the bodhisattvas? The ba- grounds of... Imprints of ignorance. I think you have a different translation of that, but... Grounds you know, what, of the imprints the, of ignorance. The subtle motivational effort that, a, that in, inspires a bodhisattva to create uncontaminated karma to take a, a mental body. Yeah. It's, that, that, that's the, the latencies of ignorance. Yeah, this is the ground of the latencies of afflictions. Is it the same? We're we talking about the same thing. Yeah. Because here I thought we were talking about the, so in, the arhats. And here it's talking about sometimes it's saying ignorance, sometimes it's saying defilements. I think it means the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So, but here we're talking about arhats. And I remember previous conversations where there was some question about what about the arhats. It's clear with the bodhisattvas that they have this subtle motivational uh, effort that's called the grounds of the imprints of ignorance. But now, there was a the, doubt about uh, yeah, arhats. That, I, 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 the subtle motivation, the grounds of the I'm not talking about that. Let's just, okay. uh, yeah, because I'm not sure if that's the same term or not. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that term, mm-hmm. okay? But here um, we are talking about the arhats because they have those obscurations. They have the cognitive obscurations. I think the latencies of ignorance you have until you become a Buddha. So it could, ref- you know, it could refer to the arhats. It could refer to the the. Uh, 
pure ground bodhisattvas. It could, I think, yeah, I think it also refers to, uh, you know, all Arya bodhisattvas, those on Path of Seeing as well. Yeah. So the other term that you mentioned, you know how bodhisattvas, what is it that causes bodhisattvas to take rebirths? especially high-level bodhisattvas, they talk about three things, aspirational prayers, great compassion, and the grounds of the imprints of ignorance. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, grounds. Okay, if if it's the imprints of ignorance, yeah, then. Yeah, I just remember previous conversations where there was a question about what about the arhats? How do they get a mental body? When do they get a mental body? Oh, it's, um, well, definitely by arhatship. And how? Because they have the latencies of ignorance. Okay. Don't they? So until you eliminate that, that's, yeah. Maybe I'm not understanding your question. A little confusion about the, about when we, so, so here's what I think. At the beginning, um, in the, in the first ones and the second ones where we're meditating on, um, it appears the way it's written that we that the um, the particularly the beings that these first two the Buddha image and the lotus and the bees with the honey are particularly for beings who are in the form ordinary beings in the form and formless realm and it's like they don't even it appears that they don't even know they have Buddha nature that's that's why they're stuck there, right? Mm-hmm. But as we go deeper and, and we get into these more higher, higher realms, it's not about whether you know you have Buddha nature, it's whether you realize your Buddha nature, mm-hmm. right? So there's two two different ways that these similes are working. One is simply not knowing, which we don't either. Yeah. But then there comes a point where it's not about knowing anymore, but it is about the realization. Well, yeah, but you, you know, oh, it's different, uh, you know, uh, Oh, I know that my lunch is in the refrigerator is very different than eating, getting your lunch and eating it. So, yeah. yeah. So, so there's a progression. That, uh, somehow I wasn't tracking until I got to the. Home. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Buddha nature is gradually revealed, but it's still obscured. And as long as it's obscured, you know, you're not there yet. Okay, <laughs> because m- what the path is, you know, when you study the paths and grounds, you're eliminating, uh, you know, from path of seeing onwards, you're eliminating certain levels of the afflictions, and then certain levels of the cognitive obscurations, and so that's a whole process that goes on. And are you actually working on the cognitive obscurations even while you're working on the afflictions, or does it not? The prasangikas say no, but there's, uh, I think, some of the svatandrakas say you can, you do both at the same time, but the prasangikas say no, you first work on the afflictions, then you work on the cognitive obscurations. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, makes more sense. Venerable. Um, the part about the arahat has a mental bodies, right? Mm-hmm. If the arahat don't have a form, 
How can they actually manifest to benefit sentient beings with a bodhicitta? Uh, they don't manifest for the benefit of sentient beings. The arhats stay in their peaceful meditation on emptiness. Oh, what I mean is, like after they're born in a pure land. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're in that lotus for a long time. Okay, and then when they come out, they have to generate bodhicitta. And after they be- generate bodhicitta, they start on the the first Mahayana path. So they go back to the path of accumulation on the ma of the Mahayana, and then they go through the the five paths on that vehicle. Okay. So that's why they say that. It's really good for us, even though we're still like baby beginners and very ignorant, to hear repeatedly hear about bodhicitta again and again and again, and develop reverence and admiration for bodhicitta, and think about it, and, and you know, generate our our uh, <laughs> kind of uh, you know. Uh, artificial bodhicitta as much as we can because then later when we get to uh you know when we have um the the unity of of serenity and um an insight instead of going into the shravaka or solitary realizer vehicles we'll stay within the mahayana and go Directly to awakening. Yeah. If you do the Arhat trip first, it takes much longer to finally get to awakening. So our teachers are all trying to, you know, kind of hurry us up and cut out a few here, a few eons here and there. Okay. But you see how it works because you hear this. I mean, we listen to Geshe-la, yeah, every, every Tuesday, every Saturday, you know. He really, and he starts always with precious human life. And he always gets to, you know, bodhicitta. Because that is so important to have imprinted in our mind. Yeah, so that we will naturally as much as we naturally can, but maybe with a lot of effort, that that idea will come into our mind of, oh yeah, I could go straight for my own nirvana right now. And gee, that would be really nice, you know, forget this world, it's so screwed up. Yeah, I just want to, you know, meditate in the nature of reality, and that's blissful, and you know, finish the path, no future rebirth. I'm out of samsara. Bye, folks. Yeah. And as, you know, you can see how tempting it would be to go that direction. Yeah. So that's why from the very beginning, you know, we're told this about bodhicitta. Yeah. I was talking with Venerable Siltram this morning. I forget how we got on the topic, but I was commenting to her that I never had a a choice about going to college. 
from the time I was this big in my mother's womb, they were saying, you're going to college, you're going to college, you're going to college. There was never a question. There was, I never had any choice in it. It was put into me, you know, starting this big. And, uh, and it worked. Yeah. Whereas they could have been telling me, you know, something else. Yeah. You're going to be a hairdresser. You're going to be a hairdresser. Hairdresser. You're going to be a pole dancer. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know they, they put some good inference. They didn't tell me what to study. I had a choice. Yeah. But going to college was not a choice. Yeah. Okay. So that that's what our teachers do, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, by the way, not all... Po- I learned this. Not all pole dancers are what you guys are laughing at. Yeah. It's actually a new athletic field. And, you know, and people go to pole dancing competitions. (laughs) Yeah. Like like, like who? Like who? I think we better go on to another topic here. (laughs) 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 What? Have what? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, any other intelligent questions? <laughs> um, anything? Yeah. What is perinirvana? Is that kind of more Theravada term that when the Buddha passes away from? Um, perinirvana is usually used uh, for a, uh, a wheel turning Buddha when they've already attained nirvana, but now they are leaving the body. So that's called their perinirvana. Sometimes uh, when there's a very highly revered teacher and they pass away, they say perinirvana. Okay. But I don't, you know, it just, in the Theravada tradition, it would mean the Buddha just left his body and he's in nirvana and that's it. They don't talk about the Buddha manifesting again. Yeah. Whereas the Mahayana talks about you know, yes, attains perinirvana, but immediately comes back and helps. Okay. Anything else? Okay. I think we will stop here because... Well, let's just read that first verse. Okay, we're looking at the three aspects of 
the Tathagata. So Maitreya, yeah, he, he's onto this topic, asserts that each sentient being has the Buddha essence and can attain Buddhahood. So remember, not all Buddhists assert that everybody has the Buddha nature and can attain Buddhahood. Okay, so here's um, Maitreya from Uttara Tantra. Because a perfect Buddha's body is pervasive, because suchness is without differentiation, and because a Buddha lineage exists, all embodied beings are always in possession of a Buddha nature. Okay. Can you see the syllogism in that verse? Can somebody make that verse into a syllogism? The subject, all embodied beings, are always in possession of the Buddha essence because, 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 all three reasons. Yeah. Yeah, so the subject is all embodied beings. Yeah, what are you trying to prove? That they're always in possession of a Buddha essence, even though they may not know it. Why? There are three reasons. Because a perfect Buddha's body is pervasive, because suchness or emptiness is without differentiation, the suchness of the Buddha's mind, the suchness of our mind, and because a Buddha lineage exists. In other words, the Buddha lineage is referring to the Buddha nature, Buddha potential. Okay, and so the next section goes into those three reasons. And then, oh, then, yeah. Yeah, then it goes through some puzzles. <laughs> okay. And then, after that, we have just one more chapter for this book. <laughs> then we have, uh, this is volume three, so we have seven more volumes. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the winter retreat this year is about refuge and the four truths. So the beginning of volume four is about refuge. It goes into a lot of the material that you also find in the, um, in the philosophical texts. Yeah. So you'll have teachings on it here, but you'll also, it's good if you do some reading of that chapter. Yeah. And think about it. And then with the, uh, four truths, this volume all about uh, the four truths, all four of them. And also those of you who were here when Geshe Tapke taught Pramnavartika. Yeah, he also went through the four truths. Okay, so let's dedicate. <laughs> <laughs>